Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chit Heads. I'm your host, Jacob Kyle, and I'm here today with Judith Blackstone. Judith developed the Realization Process, a method of embodied psychological and relational healing and non-dual spiritual awakening. She is the author of Trauma and the Unbound Body, which just came out on December 1st, 2018, Belonging Here, The Enlightenment Process, The Intimate Life, and The Empathic Ground. An audio series of the Realization Process is available from Sounds True. So with that, hello, Judith. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I just want to offer a little disclaimer to our listeners. Judith already knows this, but I am working on three hours sleep, so I may be a little slow, but I'm going to do my very best, and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll come out with a dynamic conversation. At least we know Judith will be dynamic, and that's the important thing. <laughs> so, uh, Judith, uh, I would love to hear a little bit about your story just to start off and, and what has led you to the work that you do in um, uh, embodied non-duality, which is a topic we're going to explore a lot today. Mm. Okay, well, that's a long story, of course, mm -hmm. but uh, the bottom line is I had been a professional dancer as a child and as a young woman, and I injured my back very badly, and I needed to find a way to heal it, and that started my journey, body workers, psychotherapists, uh, healer, healers of all stripes, and finally uh, realized, uh, you know, out of desperation, that I needed to cultivate a very, very fine inward focus in order to let go of myself uh, on a level where I could get relief for that injury. And, uh, and then I began my spiritual journey and, um, and realized to a large extent that what I was experiencing, and by the way, I had dance students coming, that's how I was earning a living, uh, so I was teaching them everything that I discovered in my own healing process. And then I got to... Uh, to uh, Buddhism to Hinduism, and um, and realized that that there was a lot of correlation between what I had already been exploring and what people had been knowing and teaching for many 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 years, and uh, and that of course brought a lot of enrichment, um, clarity to what I was experiencing and teaching. Now the the kind of fundamental trauma that you're talking about, the, the physical injury was, uh, I understand what I was listening to the liberated body interview um, and a beautiful interview. And you talked about it being a kind of fused, you had to, you were, the doctors suggested that you get your spine fused. Is that correct? Yes. So when you were in the, that kind of, you know, your own somatic work, were you just doing your own kind of spontaneous, you know, subtle exploration based on your own kind of knowledge through dance? Or did you, were you working with some kind of meditation practice at that point? Oh, I was working on my own. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was, I was quite on my own, but I had explored various bodywork techniques, um, and and there were a couple of places where I really learned something. For example, I learned from a woman I did, I was doing Alexander technique with, she was doing her own version of it, a little bit different than the classical Alexander technique. And uh, she uh, was uh, teaching how you could, and working with me in a way where she put her hand on the tension and felt the directionality of the of the arrested energy within the tension and gave it just a little bit of nudge mm -hmm. and then it would continue on its line and then release. I learned a tremendous amount about that and that really became a basis for the self-healing work that then I later later did with myself and taught. 
Um, I got a book uh, called, I think it was called Tantric Meditation with illustrations. And <laughs> Let me say this is in the uh, 70s, you know, uh, yeah. and right, early 70s. And um, there wasn't much, there wasn't that much, you know, you could browse around. Um, but, uh, but I began experimenting with that all all in the service of making deeper, more inward contact with myself. I was in a back brace for six months. And um, of course I had been a dancer, so I was used to a lot of movement and agility. And I began to feel that, oh, there's this very internal kind of movement, more and more and more subtle. Now, not yet the ground that I was to finally arrive at and teach fundamental consciousness, but more and more subtle levels of attunement inward that kind of prepared for that. Mm. So when you <clears throat> when you were working with this um, Alexander Technique person, were you able, obviously, you know, as I understand it, I don't know a lot about this kind of, um, you know, surgery, but I imagine it's, you know, fusing means frozen in the sense like there's no movement. So were you able to <clears throat> find like some kind of fluidity there or was it really your relationship with that space that became more fluid? No, there's no relationship with that kind of density. <laughs> Please go away. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, but I learned a tremendous amount uh, from it, and I did finally get fluidity through it, um, and and more and more, you know. Uh, but um, I learned a tremendous amount from it because basically there was fusion that was in the lower spine, and it was just like having a little bit of brick there, you know. Uh, it was it was untenable. It was not something I could live with or come into a relationship with or you know encompass. But I did learn that having a little bit of brick <laughs> density somewhere in the body then creates the same density everywhere in the body that were that were made in the in that kind of mirror way. It's really, I think, closest to to fractal geometry, to, to self-similarity, but we're made so that if there's tension in one little part of one part of the body, it's going to be mirrored yeah. in every part of the body. So, so all kinds of very interesting things. But, but the most important thing about that process, that healing process, and the bulk of it took about 10 years, um, was that I discovered uh, the more and more subtle ways that we can experience ourselves and as a consequence, the world around us. Mm, mm. So it turned out to be quite the gift then. Yes, finally. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, I, I feel like it is sort of these, these injuries that, that we learn the most from, right? They, they encourage us towards kind of degrees of subtle awareness that, you know, if we were just kind of in our physical prime and physical, the, you know, the kind of physical aptitude that we have, from childhood on, if it, that just continued, maybe we wouldn't ever get to these, you know, more mature sort of realizations, not just, you know, age-wise, but just embodiment-wise. So, um, you know, with that, we can move into kind of this this concept that you explore in, in one of your your talks for the Science and Non-Duality Conference was embodied non-duality. And, you know, these two words, the words that are part of this concept, embodiment and non-duality, are, of course, very popular. There's embodied philosophy, which is the name of this website. There's, you know, there's so many embodied, even though when I created embodied philosophy, I swear there weren't as many. I'm just saying. Me too. <laughs> so it's happening everywhere now. And in this work, I mean, it's great. We're thinking about the body. Um, so I want to kind of take these two terms in turn, and then we'll put them together. But, you know, 
what does embodiment mean to you? Obviously, we have a body, but what does it mean to be embodied in the sense that you're um, unpacking it for us? Yeah, very good. Very good question. Very important because it's used in different ways. And, um, uh, for example, sometimes embodied cognition as a term is used just that the, the body supports cognition and, and guides it in a way. Yeah. Um, and then we have a kind of connection between the body and the mind. Well, of course, for people who don't have very much at all connection between the body and the mind, that's important, you know, to become more and more aware of the body. But this is a step further than being aware of. It's actually living within the body. Uh, it's quite a different experience. It feels like one is conscious everywhere in the body. And because of that, it feels like one is, feels like you are made of consciousness. Uh, so it's, it can be described as, as true body-mind integration, oneness. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So then, I mean, that obviously then connects quite easily. We can see it segueing nicely into the concept non of non-duality, which of course, again, is um, a very popular word right now. And everyone wants to uh, be acting and interacting with the world non-dually, which of course, to me is always, it strikes me a little bit as um, paradoxical because, you know, the relations of the world are in some sense dual because you have a subject and you have an object. So, um, so what do you, what does non-duality mean for you in, in yes. the sense, this in sense of embodied non-duality? Yes. Yes. You're absolutely right. There's so many different types of non-duality. Uh, frankly, I think the term has been embraced in part so that people like myself who are teaching very subtle spiritual work don't have to call ourselves spiritual teachers, which has so much baggage attached to it you know I and, and i think that's a great step in our society that you know we're not worshiping photographs of people necessarily and and, and all of that um but that peers can teach what they have experienced to to other people uh to peers so um so i embrace that term uh but what it means to me uh is not a, an erasing of the either the subject or the object, but an actual continuity of subject and object. When we uncover ourselves, which we can, as this very, very subtle consciousness, which I've already talked about as what we can experience in our whole body and as our whole body, when we attune to that or, or realize ourselves as that, we experience that same very subtle consciousness, which I call fundamental consciousness, pervading not just our whole body, but our environment hmm. at the same time. And what that means is that the oneness is a oneness of the space that pervades me and the oneness that pervades my environment. That, one, that fundamental consciousness pervading my body gives me a palpable sense of my own internal unity, internal wholeness. It, it reveals the basic but seem to be innate qualities of humanness um, that we all that we all share, love, intelligence, pleasure, power, basic qualities. So it gives me a sense of truly existing as a separate person and also reveals uh, the changing dynamic, uh, growing learning and so forth that make up my unique personality and everybody's unique personality. But at the same time that this very fine consciousness pervades me, it pervades uh, the environment. And that means that oneness includes 
this separate being and your separate being we so that we can really we can really even get a sense of that you know your uniqueness my uniqueness and at the same time experience ourselves as made of the same unified ground mm-hmm. that's beautiful i mean um that resonates on a lot of levels in in and and so i'm wondering kind of what because i hear that there's a sense of separateness that you're describing that is interconnected but there is a sense in which when i was listening to one of your talks or maybe it was in the interview that you describe this more kind of cosmic body right so there's this sort of there's a, a kind of sense in which we are a part of a larger collective body and then we also have this separateness so um I don't I'm not quite sure if my if I here's where the tiredness is coming in I'm not quite sure what my question is but I'm wondering what the relationship is um to that because this also came up when I was reading your psychoanalytic article and I found it a little interesting that you sort of um that you you were sort of emphasizing the existence as a separate being because of course a lot of non-dual teachings are are emphasizing the non-separateness of everything. So maybe a better question is, um, what is more fruitful about the separate in non-separateness versus kind of just dissolving the separate self altogether? Yeah, great. Um, Yeah. Well, one reason, of course, that I'm emphasizing in my work the separate being is being continuous with this oneness is because so many non-dual teachers say that you don't exist, and I feel right. like that's uh, that's misleading uh, and destructive in so many different ways, or at least two main different ways. I was also in the psychoanalytic article that you're referring to emphasizing the the fruition of the separate being that, that occurs, the maturity of the separate being that occurs, because that particular wing of psychoanalysis intersubjectivity theory that I was speaking to also de-emphasizes the separateness of the individual. And, uh, and, I, and I again feel like that's a, that's a limitation in, in that theory. So, um, so I think um, it, very important in that way uh, to make sure that's not thrown out, uh, the, the fact that, the, that we become more of who we truly are Right, more of who we innately are, as we uh, realize ourselves as what I'm going to call fundamental consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, but also because so many of the teachings talk simply about a non-dual awareness, and they'll even make this sort of gesture, you know, awareness, mm-hmm. and um, and it's all out there right. too. You know, uh, once I ask someone, "Can you have a memory as non as non-duality?" He was really stumped by that, uh, because that that out there, you know, this out there is a kind of a frozenness in the present moment can't can't go anywhere, you know, um, and that's um, that's misleading. Uh, oneness, I think, obviously, if if oneness is just out there, that's I call that halfness, right? <laughs> just what how they have oneness has to include our own being, or it's not oneness. People also ask, how can we have a relationship in non-duality? Well, beautifully, we can have a wonderful, rich relationship if both people have realized non-duality, especially because we experience that uh, deep, deep, deep connection. Your internal space and my internal space actually resonates together. It's something that's 
not often talked about in non-dual teachings, the internal space of the body, when we get to that very subtle aspect of ourselves, has the capacity to resonate with, connect, and even to some extent read the internal space of another body. And we resonate love to love, you know, and we also, of course, can then relate as two unique human beings with somewhat less projection, right? More, yeah. you know, more cognizance of what's going on. So, so I think it's important. And it's important also that we open our whole being. So sometimes what's, what's left out or ignored um, in teachings that talk about non-dual awareness or talk about just kind of out there clarity of the present moment uh, don't necessarily talk about the transformation that occurs for us in which we, we must open our entire being, not just awareness, but everywhere throughout our whole being in order to know ourselves as part of the oneness. Mm -hmm. So I want to, um, that's beautiful. I want to just ask you something that I read um, in, rela you're in relation to this kind of what I see as sort of a critique of one way of looking at non-duality. And you say, you describe it in one of your um, uh, articles that it is taught with a punitive attitude. Um, and I was wondering if you if you mean punit in, by punitive that the that the de the denial of the self in that contact is sort of essentially saying that the self is bad or that yes. one shouldn't have a self is that kind of what you mean that's what i mean and sometimes there's that tone in it from non-dual teachers which i think just adds you know injury insult <laughs> injury um you know your your feeling that's no good that's yeah that's your small self it's a fluctuation yeah you're, yeah. you're thinking of that yourself as a child that's no good that's your old story that's not who you are really uh just uh eliminating the whole richness of of who we are and how we got here but but also that um it exacerbates what many of us have already experienced to some extent growing up right don't be so smart don't be so loud don't be so powerful don't be so vital yes uh don't cry so be less and less of yourself Right. right. And so many people hearing the teaching of, if you exist, that's bad. You're, you know, like, altogether, you know, the non-dual teachings, I think, in this country sometimes get mixed up with a kind of a Western morality, too, which yes, I'm not sure it's taught in, in the East. You know, like, so, you know, if you have that self, God won't love you. Well, but we're not really talking about God right now. We're, you know, talking about realization. Um this is not a blessing that that falls on us realization you know if we're, if we're good or if we follow the teacher's orders not to feel or not to think about ourselves at all um it's a realization it comes from within it's all of our birthright mm. so, yeah so yeah. all of that beautiful so um i'm glad you're mentioning this about the um the way that sometimes non-duality is taught and it, it sort of resonates with what Paul often says, Paul, my teacher, Paul, who I know you're familiar with, Paul Muller Ortega, um, Kashmir Shaivism um, scholar practitioner, and he often describes this as the difference between the renunciant versus the householder teachings, and that in the kind of, well, he uses a lot of Hindu terminology, but in the Kali Yuga, when, when things have gotten confused, there's this... Um, there's been a confusion of the practices that are appropriate for 
householders, what we're talking about, householders being people who are embodied, living lives, having selves. And then those have been confused with the renunciant teachings, which are essentially, you know, for monks who are going into who, where it is appropriate to kind of, you know, dissolve into the ocean of, 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 of consciousness because they're living in a, in a monastery up in the mountains where they don't have to, you know, organically approach, you know, life. So, uh, so yeah, so anyway, I just wanted to... Yeah, well, I see you have a point. Yeah, I, I don't quite agree with that because the renunciate is just, you know, giving him, him or herself a little more time to realize themselves. And I think the realization itself is limited if we don't experience fundamental consciousness pervading our own form, right? So it's particularly important, of course, if you want to live in the world and not bunk into walls and stuff. But... But even for the renunciate, I mean, all the more time and focus to be able to have this really mature realization uh, that pervades everywhere. Yeah, I think I think that just to kind of uh, hammer away at that a little bit more, I think that that uh, at least philosophically, the the idea is that one is sort of approaching nirguna Brahman, one is approaching saguna Brahman. So Brahman with form, Brahman with attributes, Brahman without attributes, and. And, and yeah, I mean, and then when you get into, of course, Shaivism, Shaivism says that, yes, the, the kind of contentless consciousness of, you know, Brahman without attributes is actually kind of a lower sort of realization than the realization where it, that, that realization of consciousness pervades everything. You have to come back from it. Yeah. You have to eventually open your eyes. And, you know, as, as Thomas Merton told us, you know, the hardest thing about being a monk is other monks, right? There's... You're never going to be completely alone, yeah. or there's going to be that annoying chipmunk who's always there, whatever, yeah. right? You come back from that, you know, uh, objectless state, and there are objects. And <laughs> yeah, what do you do then? Yeah, this annoying bookshelf. <laughs> right, that's right, that's right. The ticking clock, or whatever this. <clears throat> but that. Uh, you know, that consciousness without objects, that's a state that can, you know, it's an absorbed state yeah. that can help us then open more fully, I think, to this state that pervades objects. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So let's get a little bit into kind of uh, an overview of kind of the practice of the realization process, which of course is um, this sort of practice of embodying non-duality. So I, I, know, um, uh, I know that there's sort of an orientation, some of the there's some practices that are oriented around like the head, chest, and the pelvis. But can you kind of give us some of the fu the fundamental features of the realization process? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, kind of what one of the things that distinguishes uh, the realization process from other uh, methods of non-duality that do mention the ground and the, the full realization is that there is practice uh, associated with it, and um, and that's because. I have found that if people are simply told, this is your true nature, just sit with it, and, and that's it, great, um, that, many, that oftentimes people will let go of themselves from a kind of surface of themselves. Mm -hmm. right? So there is an expansion. It's an energetic, often an energetic expansion, which I make a distinction in this work between knowing oneself as matter, energy, and the stillness of the ground of fundamental consciousness. So, so they let go of themselves and they sit. And of course, the, all that goes along with that kind of teaching, the self-acceptance, self-acceptance of life as it is, excellent, 
things, and especially for those of us who grow up wanting to do things right and kind of holding ourselves tight, uh, very, very good, but often does not get to fundamental consciousness itself. For that, it is a letting go, but it's a letting go from deep within us, from deep within the whole internal space of the body, from, from uh, that very, very subtle channel, Shushumana in the Hindu system, uh, central channel in Tibetan Buddhism, that opens into fundamental consciousness. So in my experience, we need to do a little concentrated focus work, not a whole lot, you know, like not a lifetime, not a whole lot, but a little focused, concentrated experience in order to deepen our inward contact with ourselves and then let go and allow for what is a self-arising, as the, the Buddhist wonderful term, of that ground of our being, self-arising completely without volition, completely uncreated, as Shankara called it, uncreated, uh, to allow that to arise, uh, I believe, needs a letting go from from deep within the body, not an ordinary mundane letting go. Mm. So what is the, then, um, you know, is it sort of, the same kind of sequence each time, or is the sequence dependent on the client or the practitioner? Yeah, well, there's some main practices. There's there's really two main practices in that. The one is a practice of inhabiting the whole body, attuning to the innate qualities of the body. And there again, we're volitionally attuning to something that's actually uncreated, you know, that, that would over lifetimes arise perhaps naturally. Um, but we're attuning to it, and then we're uh, attuning directly to the pervasive space of fundamental consciousness, and then letting go, right? So that we kind of set up a sort of preparation for that self-arising, which is the actual realization. The practices, of course, are not the actual realization, they're practices. So there's that one practice, which takes about a half hour, um, of inhabiting the body and attuning to pervasive space, pervading the body and environment, and that takes in also what happens with the senses and so forth as we know ourselves as that ground, as we attune to ourselves as that ground. And the other main practice of the realization process is attuning to that subtle channel that I just spoke of. It's a, for those couple of listeners who don't know about it, it's a subtle channel that we can find that runs vertically through the torso, neck and head, and above and probably below the torso, um, very fine channel that we can uh, most easily open from into fundamental consciousness once we have found it. And it also opens us into that very, very subtle energy that they do talk about in uh, Kashmir Shaivism, that very, very subtle uh, energy uh, by going into the core, because that's part of knowing ourselves as the stillness of fundamental consciousness is also knowing us as the most subtle aspect of our energy system actually designed on a spectrum from dense to subtle. But when we know ourselves as the stillness of fundamental consciousness, we also know ourselves as this very, very, very subtle kind of radiance of the of the space, of the stillness. And um, and that we get to by going into this very subtle channel and initiating our breath within it. So it's a kind of very subtle breathing exercises. Those are the two main exercises and those are pretty much repeated. Because they're practices, they need to be practiced. They need to be practiced fairly consistently, repetitively. Then there's a lot of other auxiliary practices that come in as people need them. Um, there's relational practices because we have, as just from, from 
our earliest years set up that protected artificial division between self and other in relation to other human beings. Mm -hmm. So we can sit on our meditation pillow and open and feel wonderful and even, you know, feel it pervading the trees and maybe our cat. But as soon as we see another human being, boom, we're back into that divided space. So in the realization process, we do practices directly for tuning to fundamental conscious with another person. So that's part of it. We also do some gentle movement practices, also for cultivating that inward contact with one's own form so as to open more fully to knowing oneself as fundamental consciousness. So those that are, um, you know, familiar with the um, chakra system will see will see the kind of at least loose correlation of you know ch head, chest, and pelvis with with the chakra, with some you know some fundamental differences that I've noticed, or some some differences. One being the kind of um, idea the head focus is not like the third eye or the crown; it's the the middle of the head. And I have to say, when I was reading the article where you're describing this. I almost immediately, as soon as I, I, I sort of went there and it was, there was a very kind of visceral buzz that I think I haven't had, you know, uh, and so I'm curious if that just sort of emerged for you in the context of your own practice and exploration, or if that was something that was sort of suggested from another path. Yes, actually the center of the head was suggested to me by a, a teacher that I worked with for about five years. He was actually a rolfer. He wasn't a portraying himself as a teacher, um, you know, because I had this uh, problem in my body. So um, I went to Alexander Technique, and I also went to this man. Um, his name uh, is, or was, Amos Gunsberg. Um, he, you know, there, the, you know, was a lot, uh, a lot going on there. Uh, he was a very interesting person, uh, but he taught me about the center of the head. He rolfed, he did rolfing with me oh, wow. for five years. You know how you're supposed to do it yeah. for 10 sessions? I did for five years. <laughs> Every week, sometimes twice a week, yeah. Oh, that's completely, intense. Completely rolfed. <laughs> what you see before you, completely rolfed. So, <laughs> yeah. but that was a hard case, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, but he was an extremely perceptive man uh, he hated anything in the Eastern religions, just dis just despised it. Uh, thought it was all complete nonsense. So we had many good arguments on that as I began to go towards uh, Asian religion. But he taught me about the center of the head, and it was liberating for me, you know, to get there because, like many sensitive people, I you know lived smack up against the world like that, and to get that distance and actually feel contact with people and feel safe in my own body, you know, in that distance, in touch with myself, um, and able to connect with other people. That was uh, really redeeming, it was wonderful. And then later on, I realized that, oh, this actually enters right into fundamental consciousness, which of course Amos didn't talk about, um, but, but it does, it enters right into fundamental consciousness. Uh, so I use that point, I use the heart chakra, I use what I call the pelvic centers between the second and third chakra. Really, you can go in and do this core breath anywhere along the core. And once you're pretty adept at it, you can do that core breath anywhere in your body, you know, yeah. you know thumb, right? So, um, but 
but I, I do those three points just to get kind of the whole core quickly. Yeah, I think that the head one, especially for me, was. Uh, I mean, I haven't done the, the other ones yet, but um, it was quite amazing. Just how just how immediate it was, and and how you know apparent that what you're describing the distance is, and and I, and I sort of wonder if you know in the in the Indian tradition there's this idea of the chittakash, right, the space in, inside the head, um, and often it's described the space just inside the forehead. But I'm sort of wondering if that's actually a more appropriate location of that of what has been described as the chittakash. Yeah, well, there's there is, is an experience of a channel between, I actually work, and not between the brows to the third eye, but a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, we can work even the point above that. But there's a channel, experience of a channel, between the center of the forehead and the center of the head, mm -hmm. which is very interesting to, to open. And I worked, during my time working with Amos, this is where getting now we're still kind of the late 70s, I worked with a man on the sounds for the chakras. His name was Sham Bhatnagar. I think he's still teaching somewhere. And I worked with him for just a little while. And he was talking about the center of the head. And he said that his teacher in India, um, he was Indian himself, East Indian. Uh, he said that his teacher in India said that the third eye was like a trigger point mm -hmm. for the actual uh, sixth chakra, which was the center of the head. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought that was interesting. So Super interesting. Yeah, super interesting. So it actually exists in the, somewhere in the Indian systems as well. Excellent. I'll have to go search for it. <laughs> so I want to talk now, I want to shift gears a little bit um, and talk about trauma. And, um, you know, and, and I think, obviously, you've just written a book, um, Trauma and the Unbound Body, which I think is a beautiful kind of term. Um, and And so I guess the question, the first question is sort of what do we, what uh, what is unique about the approach to trauma uh, in the realization process as opposed to perhaps other ways of approaching trauma? Yeah, I think uh, I think the realization process makes two contributions to uh, even to somatic approaches to um, to working with trauma. One is there's a very specific release technique which is a little bit different than other techniques, and I'm I'm not going to describe it, but it it works to um, it works to recognize and release the exact pathway of the way we've organized ourselves. Mm -hmm. One distinction in terms of the somatic or the body psychotherapy field is that I'm not working with the nervous system per se. I'm really working with the fascia uh, and I'm working with the fascia in a kind of sophisticated way that, you know, uh, it's just sort of the, the frontier of fascia work as well, where we think of it as a kind of a collagen matrix that's everywhere in the body. Actually, either Ralph herself talked about it that way. Mm -hmm. So that we can organize ourselves in reaction to our environment from our first day and maybe from even before that in reaction to the environment through the medium of, of whatever this level of being is, level of very subtle tissue that seems to interface with the mind um, and, um, and, and dampen the impact of experience that would otherwise might have a shattering effect on us. So... So I'm so I'm working with what I believe is the fascia, but definitely not just the nervous system. Uh, releasing a certain amount of the fascia, of course, will relax the nervous system. So there's so there's that difference. There's this very specific release technique that works to get into the tension and find exactly the movement of into the constriction and release it. Very much the way that Alexander teacher, her name was is Lydia Yohei, uh, taught me so many years ago. 
Um, right? Only we can do it ourselves. We don't need a, We don't need someone doing it for us. In fact, I think it's more effective if we do it ourselves. Mm. Uh, we need to have. So the other contribution I think from realization process in terms of trauma work is um, when we release because we have already in the realization process, and I won't do the release technique until people have already done the, at least those first two practices that I described, that they can be in their body, that they can tune to fundamental consciousness, at least to some extent pervading everywhere, and that they can access their core, right? That's one, because we need to access the core in order to get a fine enough, precise enough focus into the holding patterns, right? Into those organizations. But the other reason is so that when we let go, we don't let go into nothingness, right? We let, which can be very intimidating and will right away as soon as we leave the therapist's office establish it again, but sometimes, but but rather we let go into this ground of being, right? In, into who we are. And and we, we can claim it that way and maintain it. It becomes part of who we know and experience that we are. So um, one thing that kind of stood out to me, but I'm not I'm not quite sure if I maybe interpret it correctly, but it seemed um, in one of your articles that you were suggesting that we should be inhabiting our whole body before pervasive consciousness. But then I just heard you say that you do you inhabit pervasive consciousness and then you approach the trauma. So what's the sequence there? Because I guess initially I was sort of I was liking that idea of inhabiting the body before pervasive consciousness because it seems like you know what often happens is people leap you know to go back to what we were talking about earlier people leap towards that transcendental state as a way of escaping their trauma rather Which, than than kind of you know working through it first so what is the what is the sequence there what is the what is the relationship of pervasive con the relationship to pervasive consciousness that relationship what is the relationship of that relationship to the relationship to the trauma oh to the trauma to, re, to the trauma work you mean yes you know the sequence inhabiting the body and attuning to pervasive Consciousness, that's really all one practice, right? We we inhabit the body in order to then experience that the space inside the body and outside the body pervading our environment is exactly the same space. Don't make a distinction between those. Okay. Uh, so we inhabit the body in order to experience that we are seen to be made of fundamental consciousness, um, that we can experience ourselves that way. So that proceeds, I think should proceed uh, the release work of the trauma because it, we have the the safety of some the amount, yeah, of contact with ourselves. This is not uh, regressive work. We don't become the child. We actually, with all the present-day attunement to the ground, uh, are able to observe and experience that one little bit of ourselves, so that child mentality that actually always seems to still be there within the holding pattern, um, while the rest of us, and these days it's called resource, right? While the rest of us is connected and in contact uh, with present day reality, mm -hmm. right? So, um, so it's much safer, feels much safer, yeah. and, um, and it gives us some place to release into. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So then what is, I guess, um, a follow-up question to that is, what, are, what is one of the dangers of releasing trauma without that sort of backdrop or without out that ground to uh, to be safe in. 
Yes. So, so maybe danger is a, a, yeah, it's a little strong word. Inflammatory yeah, word. It's, not, it's not dangerous. And that's not usually dangerous. Um, you, the, the danger is that we'll reestablish it. Right. Uh, you know, we'll protect ourselves again because it's so there's nothing to scary. Fall back on, so we'll, yeah. nothing to fall back on. So, it's, so there we are, just open. Ah, you know, I'm just open, but there's no, you know, contact. A lot, a lot of energy is released. You know, my early training was to take a, a baseball bat, a rubber baseball bat, and hit a pillow as hard as I could and say the worst things that I could think of to say. And that would release a whole lot of energy. I mean, it was great. <laughs> it was very scary. And um, and it was kind of, there wasn't, the, the cognitive aspect was often missing, which I think is very important so that we don't, so that we know why we did the holding pathway so that the next time we see that same type of authority figure or whatever, uh, or withdrawn emotional person or whatever it is, uh, that we don't go back into the same holding pattern. So, um, so, and there's a feeling of danger, even though there's no actual danger. Of course, if, um, if we're very, very loose, right, if we, if we tend towards mental illness, well, then there is a danger of what we call decompensation that, you know, that, that will lose touch with reality if we go too too far too fast, and and that's a very important. That's why it's very important to do this with someone else yeah. who's there, and and to let the therapist know if you have that in your history, if you're that that loose, right? Because uh, the center needs to hold, right? And then we would just simply do much more of the centering work in the body and so forth. So that'd be the only actual danger, but there's a feeling of danger because we made so many of these holding patterns protectively. Mm -hmm. There's a feeling that if I let this go, my father who's, you know, been dead a number of years is going to come marching in here and yell at me again. Right. And I'm going to be that scared little person again. So, you know, that's a, that's a feeling of danger, but when we inhabit ourselves, we f we have an actual palpable sense of safety, that contact with ourselves and that unity and that feeling of our own love, feeling of our own power, personal strength, feeling of our own intelligence is an actual feeling of safety. Yeah, right? yeah. Is there also a sense of the loss of identity here? So, you know, in, in the way that I've become so habituated to my kind of... Um, patterns uh, rooted in certain traumas that I become identified with them. And therefore, you know, when I, without doing the kind of identifying with the ground of consciousness work, that when I lose that identity, it's sort of terrifying and I, and I have no anchor and, no, gr and no, and no ground from, for making sense of who I am anymore. And that that is one of the kind of fears or uh, that, that sort of pushes us back into those holding patterns because they're familiar. And, and that sense, even though they are, they are traumatic, they're comforting. That's right. That's exactly right. That's a big part of it. Thank you. That's that's exactly right. And and some of our holding patterns actually are kind of masks and identifications, uh, you know, per, you know, actually specifically that. And those are kind of scary to let on, you know, the, the mask of being a kind of superior person or being a generous person, all of those that have bodily components to them holding holding patterns, but also just the sense of being in a certain certain shape, a certain holding pattern. And and very often people will say, well, who will I be without that? Yeah. 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 But then it turns out that who they are, it's just wonderful. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
So there was one um, just kind of passing um, reference that you mentioned. Well, it wasn't passing. It was in the context of one of the stories or one of the case studies. Um, and I just loved this idea, and I wanted just to hear you kind of elaborate on it a little bit, which was finding each other from the internal space of our bodies, and because uh, it's such a, such a beautiful idea. And and so I guess you know after we do all of this work of resolving our trauma, the next thing is we're we're hoping that that will be useful in the context of our relationships. So how does that fit in here? You know, what is this? Um, you know, finding each other from that internal space of the body. Yeah, it's extremely useful in our relationships. Um, as I mentioned, the what's often not talked about in non-dual teachings, because I think traditionally they, they weren't that concerned with relationships, yeah. um, is that the internal space of our body actually has the capacity to contact, to resonate with, and to some extent to, to read, to actually know the internal space of someone else's body. We can do it across distance. You and I could do it on Skype. We, we can do it, you know? And, and that's, it's, it's real contact. Uh, you know, fundamental consciousness, and again, not often talked about in this way, is the basis of contact. When we experience it pervading our body, that we're, we experience that we're made of fundamental consciousness, it feels like we're in deep contact with ourselves. When we sit with another person, and there are several practices in the realization process that go directly to that, uh, sit with another person that has fundamental consciousness, we have an actual sense of contact. Very hard to put into words what contact is, but we know it when we feel it, right? And it's something that we all that we all crave, right? That, that we that we're born knowing we we want. Yeah, beautiful. So um, we're sort of approaching the end of our time together. And despite my tiredness, I think this was a fantastic uh, conversation. <laughs> I survived. Um, so I guess, you know, to close, is there any sort of, you know, based on what we've been talking about, do you have any kind of closing thoughts or ideas you want to share? No, I think you covered it very well uh, with, your, with your questions. That's, that's, um, that's all I have really to... To say about it, um, you know, of course, there's more in the books and stuff, but but these are definitely the main points that it's primarily a technique, a method of knowing ourselves as fundamental consciousness and goes to that let go, no effort way of being, but no effort as that very fine consciousness pervading ourself and everything else. The things are actually transparent, that, you know, not that we can see through them, but that they're but that we experience them as permeable. Right? Life becomes this fluid, permeable ground. Um, so it's primarily that. And then it has a very, uh, I think, effective application to psychological healing and relational healing. So uh, thank you so much for that, Judith. This has been a fantastic conversation. And I guess to close, um, I would love for you to share um, a little bit about things that are coming up for you that people might be able to um, 
get in on. I know, of course, you have your website, realizationprocess.org, where people can find out more about you, including articles, and there's some media on there. Uh, the things that I mentioned, you can find there, the podcast, another podcast uh, interview, as well as a video from the Science of Non-Duality Conference. Um, and I also know that you're participating in Scott Lyons Project next year. I will be there yeah. as well. Oh, I great. I'm doing some kind of mediating some panel or moderating some panel. So yeah. I'm not sure, but I'll find out. <laughs> yeah. But you're going to be there, and uh, as well as um, Ray Johnson, who I interviewed yesterday, and some number of other people. And that's next October, is that correct? Yes, October. Somewhere mid-October. I don't have the dates in front of me. I think it's something like 12th to 15th. Yeah, something in, like in San that. Francisco, correct? In Berkeley, I oh, believe. In Berkeley, right. The the ugly stepsister. <laughs> no I'm kidding. Um, so, uh, with that, are there any other things coming up, going up, um, going on, coming up, like trainings, there's, or workshops? Yes, there's so many things coming up. If you come to the website, and now um, I also have on the website the the senior teachers, people who've been doing this work, who've trained me in doing this work for a long time. Um, I'm going to be at the Whidbey Institute on Whidbey Island. Beautiful, beautiful oh, place. That's near where I grew up. Is it? Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. And um, and that's a very intensive retreat, five days. And um, for people who haven't experienced the realization process, it's a good place to start. I'm, I'm going to teach every aspect of it. And um, and it's residential and, and just gorgeous trails and oh, labyrinths so and beautiful. everything. Yeah. So... So I would suggest that people are interested in the realization process and want to like taste it, to, to try it, that that would be a good place to start. But there's also teacher trainings coming up and all that's on the web. Absolutely. Excellent. Uh, I, I'm not sure if we mentioned it, but Whidbey Island is in Washington State, my home okay. state, and it's um, a profoundly beautiful place. So besides the profoundly beautiful experience of realization process, go check out um, my home state. Short ferry ride. Oh, it. yeah. It's just <laughs> it's just such an incredible place. Um, all right. Well, I've been speaking with Judith Blackstone, the creator of the realization process. Judith, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Oh, thank you. I've loved it. Thank you.